0: The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Deep State, an EPICS original series. Truth is a matter of perspective in this electrifying conspiracy series. Deep State returns Sunday, April 28th, only on EPICS. Get the channel or get the app. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's
1: Stephanie
0: McCrumman from The Washington Post. I'm this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, April 23rd. Today, questions of responsibility after the bombings in Sri Lanka. Speaker Pelosi taps the brakes on impeachment, and a Chinese blockbuster lands on Netflix. Sri Lanka, the first mass burial was held for the victims of the bombing that took place on Easter Sunday. At least 321 people are dead. More than 500 are injured.
2: The volume of the numbers of the victims are just just staggering. Joanna Slater is the
0: India bureau chief for The Post. Right now she's in Colombo, the capital of Sri Lanka.
2: On Easter Sunday, as Christians across Sri Lanka were gathering for mass, there were a series of coordinated explosions. They targeted three churches, uh, which were packed with people uh, because it was Easter. They targeted three luxury hotels uh, in Colombo. Later in the day, there were two uh, other blasts also in Colombo, and these were attacks that were carried out by suicide bombers. What do we know about who is responsible for this? The Sri Lankan government says that the attacks were carried out by an obscure local uh, Islamic militant group with potential international assistance. The group is called Tawheed Jamaat, based in the eastern part of Sri Lanka, but it has never done anything like this before. And in fact, Sri Lanka has never really seen attacks like this targeting Christians and foreigners before. U.S. intelligence does believe there are connections between this small uh, local Sri Lankan group and the Islamic State, but it's not clear whether those links are significant or operational.
0: We've been seeing reports about that this may have been a form of retaliation for the attacks in New
2: Zealand. Do we know that that is true? We don't know that that is true at this point. A minister in Sri Lanka's government said that the attack was a kind of retaliation for the shootings in Christchurch in New Zealand. But he didn't provide any evidence uh, to back that up. Uh, and Sri Lanka's prime minister was a little more circumspect when discussing uh, the motive behind this attack.
1: All that we knew earlier was that there were foreign links and that this could not have been done just locally. There has been training given and a coordination which we are not seen earlier.
0: So in the past few days, We've seen some criticism of the Sri Lankan government that they may have had some warnings that this could have happened. What were those warnings and why weren't officials paying attention to them?
2: There is an intelligence report that was authored by a senior police official on April 11th saying that there could be suicide attacks on popular churches within Sri Lanka by this obscure um, Islamist extremist group. How that warning circulated, uh, which parts of Sri Lanka's government knew about it, and when is not entirely clear, but ministers have said that their security staff were aware of this warning, aware of this intelligence report. So the question then becomes, if they had this relatively specific intelligence that these attacks were possible and the intelligence mentions the name of the group and the name of its leader and some of the names of its members, why didn't they do more to stop it? And we don't have the answer to that question yet.
0: The government also took some action right after these attacks to shut down social media in the entire country, which is a pretty shocking step. Can you explain
2: what led them to do that and how that's been received? Yes. So the reason the government did this was in the hours after these devastating attacks, there was a lot of false and inflammatory information circulating on those platforms. And the government was worried that that kind of information could spill over into violent reprisals in real life uh, against certain communities uh, or groups. So they took this step uh, to just clamp down on social media entirely. I'd say that the people I've spoken to here are not really upset or angry by the ban, they understand how dangerous certain kinds of information can be in certain situations. And this is certainly uh, an extraordinary uh, situation for the country right now.
0: What is the religious landscape of Sri Lanka? And is there a sense that that could have come into play with with these
2: attacks? The religious landscape of Sri Lanka is predominantly Buddhist country but it has significant communities of Hindus, Christians, and Muslims. You know there are tensions between the religious communities. There have been uh, threats uh, on Christians and attempts to dip, disrupt masses uh, in recent months. Uh, there have also been uh, attacks on, on Muslims at various points. but there's never been anything remotely like uh, what we saw here. Uh, on Sunday. So it's just such an anomaly for this country to have uh, these kinds of terrorist attacks along religious lines that people are just in a state of shock. I've spoken to several people who said even during the Civil War, there weren't attacks on churches, that churches always felt like a safe place. Is there a fear that there could be more attacks? People here are very nervous, very tense. Authorities have said that there are others in this ring who are still at large and the authorities are pursuing them. So there's a sense that some violence is, is still possible, but we simply don't know.
0: Joanna Slater is the India bureau chief for The Post. Just a few hours after the attacks, the Sri Lankan government worked with the country's phone companies to shut down access to social media sites. Tech policy reporter Tony Rom says that people in Sri Lanka and around the
3: world are torn over whether it was the right call. Well, it certainly depends on who you ask. There's a camp who thinks that the Sri Lankan government actually made the right decision. This is a country that has struggled with misinformation online, with ethnic tensions that are exacerbated by sites like Facebook. And the Sri Lankan government has been critical of Facebook in the past for not doing enough to address these problems in real time. But if you talk to some other organizations like human rights advocates or free speech advocates, they fear that this set a dangerous precedent around the world, that countries might look to using all-out blocks on social media to address a problem that ultimately ends up causing more problems. Because people in Sri Lanka weren't able to go on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube to get accurate and timely information about what was really happening on the ground. And they weren't able to use some of those services to reach out to loved ones within the country or overseas. So there's a concern that there was a bit of blowback from Sri Lanka's decision to shut down access to social media, even though there are some folks who think it might have stopped additional violence.
0: So the fact that Sri Lanka took this really drastic step seems reflective of a lot of attitudes from countries around the world about social media sites.
3: Yeah, there's a lot of global frustration that Facebook and Google and Twitter and others just haven't done enough to stop the spread of bad stuff online. And it's more than just disinformation. It's hate speech. It's cyberbullying. It's threats to elections and so forth. And so while we're not talking about countries around the world trying to block social media, we certainly are talking about regulation. The UK has put forward a recent plan that would fine companies if they don't take down malicious content fast. The European Union's considering the same. We saw actions in New Zealand and Australia after the attacks in Christchurch, New Zealand, targeting two mosques, which the companies didn't do a good enough job of taking down violent video of that attack. So globally, I think there's this recognition that something has to be done to address social media, to address the bad stuff that appears online. And you just have to consider the contrast from where we were 10 years ago. We were talking about the power of Facebook and Twitter as organizing tools with respect to the Arab Spring, about the usefulness of social media when it comes to toppling dictators and pushing the cause of democracy. And now we're having this conversation that maybe social media isn't actually all the good that we thought it was.
0: Tony Rom covers tech policy for The Post.
4: Mueller talked about how he couldn't answer the question of obstruction of justice and whether the president had obstructed justice. There was some language in the report where he basically kicked to Congress, sort of laying out this case saying that he didn't think he had the ability to answer that question.
0: Rachel Bade is a Congress reporter for The Post. She's been covering how the release of the Mueller
4: report has played out on Capitol Hill. Democrats on the Hill, the first thing I was hearing in those frantic hours after the report came out, They actually clipped that language and sent it around to reporters to sort of hold it up and say, look, Mueller wants us to dig into this. And so the top takeaway right away was Mueller wanted us to do something and we're going to do it. We don't know what it looks like, but we're going to do something. Some
0: Democrats, including 2020 presidential candidates, were calling for impeachment.
3: I'm pretty sure he deserves to be impeached. I think it would be perfectly reasonable. It's time for impeachment.
4: A lot of Democrats following the report felt that there was enough evidence in there that they could say the president obstructed justice. They felt like he had at least done something very unethical, if not committed a crime. And so normally, you know, if you feel like that as a lawmaker, impeachment is the next step.
0: But at least one Democratic leader is saying,
4: not so fast. Nancy Pelosi, who is the Speaker of the House, she has been very cautious on impeachment and worried that it would have some sort of blowback the way it did when Republicans impeached Bill Clinton in the 1990s. And she wants to not only keep her House majority, she wants to help Democrats take out Trump in 2020 and install a Democrat as president. Over the weekend and on Monday night, we saw Pelosi sort of tap the brakes lightly on this notion of impeachment, even as Democrats, some of them started to come out and say it's time. So she
0: had this conference call on Monday night with Democratic
4: congressional leadership.
0: What did she say during this conference call?
4: The leaders spoke first privately for about 15 minutes. And then they opened up the call to all House Democrats. So there were more than 150 Democrats on this call trying to figure out what is our next step. And Pelosi's message to them was basically, we're not going to start impeachment proceedings right now. We're going to keep investigating and we'll see where it leads. But she did it in such a way that she was very gentle about it. I think she knows how this really divides her party and that there's a lot of emotion surrounding this issue. She didn't say no flat out. It seems like she herself was sort of tiptoeing around the issue, knowing that it inspires a lot of passion with Democrats right now.
0: So Speaker Pelosi's trepidation about this, is it a concern that by trying to impeach Trump, she would end up galvanizing his base? Or, or why is she so
4: wary about this process? That's exactly right. And I think Trump allies say the same thing. You know, Republicans privately have been hoping that Democrats take up impeachment. So Pelosi is very concerned about that. And one sort of threshold she laid out early in the process before the Mueller report came out was that Any impeachment needs to be bipartisan. The Republicans obviously control the Senate and the House has the ability to impeach, but then it goes to the Senate for a trial and only the Senate can remove. But after the Mueller report, we saw maybe two senators put out statements sort of chastising the president. Mitt Romney was one of them. But even then, you know, even as Mitt Romney said he was sickened by what he was reading and how the president had acted – He didn't say anything about impeachment, and he actually said he was glad that no charges were filed. So right now, that bipartisan support is not there. At the same time, we're seeing a lot of Democrats, including 2020ers like Elizabeth Warren, some of even Pelosi's own chairs, Maxine Waters, for instance, who is a Democrat from California who chairs the House Financial Services Committee, put out a statement that said, you know, Democrats would be derelict in their duty if they don't do this. There's a concern about what sort of precedent it sets going forward. And, you know, if they don't impeach, are they basically greenlighting a president or future candidate to welcome the support of a foreign adversary meddling in our elections, as Mueller said Trump's team did. Democrats are worried about, you know, what does it say if they say nothing? Does it make them complacent in any way?
0: So as these congressional investigations continue, if they do end up deciding that they want to pursue impeachment,
4: what would that process look like? With impeachment, the idea was that basically each committee looks into something and they have numerous charges that they would bring on the president. Abuse of power, public corruption, trying to upend an investigation, different scandals that each committee would try to unearth, and then they would put together some sort of document that would then become the basis for impeachment
0: and and that theoretical document would go beyond the bounds of the Mueller report that was just looking at Russian interference this would include a lot of other potential presidential wrongdoings if they were to find them
4: that's exactly right house oversight committee is looking at the president and you know his instruction to give certain people security clearances even though officials who worked in the office didn't think certain people should have them for national security reasons so yes way beyond just the Mueller report Um, And so they would put out this document and then bring it to the floor, and that's sort of how it would proceed. And then how would the actual process of impeachment work? So after they have these articles of impeachment and mark them up and write them in the House Judiciary Committee, which has impeachment jurisdiction, it would go to the House floor and then it would be voted on. And should it pass the House, it would then – be carried over to the Senate. And from my understanding, there's actually like some sort of ceremony where they carry the document from the House to the Senate. And the Senate, they can't ignore it. You know, a lot of times we have bills that pass the House, the Democratic House and the Republican Senate just never takes it up. They just ignore it and they let it die. But on impeachment, it's privileged. So it would force the Senate to take it up and the Senate would be the one to carry out a trial.
0: And so when you say that this also falls to Senate Republicans and whether there's any desire there to impeach the president, that it's because the Senate is ultimately the body that will determine whether or not he is removed from office.
4: That's right. No president has ever been removed from office. So it takes two-thirds of the Senate to do that. That's a very high threshold. That's going to be a lot of Republicans that would have to join with Democrats.
0: One of the arguments that I've heard about a reason for Democrats to be wary of impeachment or of an impeachment process is that it would just take so long, right? And my assumption was that if they were to pursue this, it would just keep going through 2020 up until the election and would end up being a big distraction. But then when you look at how impeachment proceedings went down for President Clinton, it actually, from start to finish, was less than six months. Is that that argument that this would be a huge distraction? up until the presidential election and that Democrats should have their attention elsewhere. Do you think that argument holds water?
4: You know, you read a lot of the headlines, you, you know, turn on your TV and watch cable news. And a lot of whenever this stuff is happening, it dominates. Democrats, they want to keep their focus on things like health care, on pocketbook issues that they actually flipped the house on, whether it's protecting pre-existing conditions, increasing minimum wage. If they do this on the campaign trail, it's going to be Trump, 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 Mueller, Mueller, Mueller. And that is exactly the fear that Pelosi and a lot of these members from moderate districts in the House have and that their message will not break through on what they are trying to do for their voters.
0: So in the meantime, as these congressional investigations continue, what is the status of how they're going and what they're looking at?
4: To be honest, there are so many things they're looking at, it's hard to keep track. I've joked that I'm going to make like a flow chart with all the deadlines (laughs) and all the different investigations or try to duplicate myself, clone myself in some way. Um, (laughs) But I would expect the Judiciary Committee announced yesterday that they're going to bring in Don McGahn. He was a central witness for Mueller in laying out potential obstruction. Don McGahn is the former counsel for Trump, White House counsel. And he was the person that Trump told to get Mueller fired get rid of Mueller and he said no the Democrats want to hear from him and I would expect that all the big names that came out in the report the Democrats will be reaching out to them in some way shape or form trying to bring them in for public testimony and this is again this sort of strategy that they are coalescing around to if they're not impeaching highlight all the dirty laundry you know air the dirty laundry out. Um, And so they'll bring people in, they'll have them tell their stories publicly and they'll sort of, they're hoping voters will see that and they could use that against the president in 2020. It seems like
0: A strategy of just throwing a lot of things against the wall and seeing what sticks and trying to assess options of either you find you find dirt on the president that you can use for an impeachment or you find dirt on the president that you can use during the campaign, but that either way, these investigations can serve either of those purposes.
4: That's right. And one thing of note is that they're going even before his presidency to sort of show voters, you know, why would you want to vote again for a man who lied to a bank about how much his, you know, personal wealth was to try to game the system to his benefit? Why would you want to back somebody who tried to avoid taxes? They're asking for his tax returns. And this is what they think these documents will show. Obviously, we don't know because we haven't seen them. But this is all part of that strategy. Rachel, thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Rachel Bade is a Congress reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. The Wandering Earth is China's first sci-fi blockbuster, and it's earned nearly $700 million in worldwide sales. Now, Netflix has picked up the film, and they're releasing the movie online next week.
1: The Wandering Earth is a major science fiction spectacle that has gotten huge amounts of attention in China. Hi, my name is Anne Kokis. I'm an assistant professor of media studies at the University of Virginia and the author of the book, Hollywood Made in China.
0: Anne says that the wandering earth is a huge achievement for China's movie industry and for its government.
1: <sighs> the film takes place in the near future when the sun is turning into a red giant. And in order to survive, the people of Earth have to find a strategy for being able to escape the glowing, incredibly heating sun.
0: All countries and regions around the world will mobilize all resources to construct 10,000...
1: What happens is the people of Earth decide to actually propel Earth to a different solar system. That's where the name comes from, the Wandering Earth. Now, in the process of propelling the Earth to a different solar system, Earth gets sucked into the gravity of Jupiter. So a ragtag group of Chinese scientists and Chinese teenagers come together, saving the entire Earth from crashing into Jupiter. Now, one of the things that's really noteworthy here is that there is something called the United Earth Government that makes decisions but it's very clear that the Chinese partners are leaders within the United Earth government. We do hear people speaking English, but there is no mention of the United States. The Chinese government has been focusing a lot of attention on trying to build global Chinese blockbusters. The last big Chinese language blockbuster was almost 20 years ago with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Get down! China, for a long time, was focused on building its manufacturing economy, which is a comparatively low-value industry. So now the big focus for China's industrial development is moving up the value chain, so things that require more creativity, more high technology, and film is one of those strategic industries. Another part is trying to expand China's soft power and its influence around the world.
0: Anne Kokas is an assistant professor at the University of Virginia. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories on our show by going to postreports.com or join in on the conversation on Twitter by tagging me at Martine Powers or using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Deep State, an Epic's original series. Don't miss this electrifying conspiracy series when it returns Sunday, April 28th, only on Epics. Get the channel or get the app.
3: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.